Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canada's Great War, where I look at the First World War and how it changed Canada. I was away for a while, you've probably noticed there hasn't been an episode recently, probably for quite a few weeks, and that's because I was away traveling, as I mentioned before, through Alberta, making videos of various historical areas, and then I was also making a 36-episode series of 36 episodes in 36 days about every single election in Canadian history to correspond with the election campaign over on my other podcast, From John to Justin. So, that's why. But I'm back. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. Don't forget, I have three other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, Coast to Coast, which releases every single Thursday, and Canada's Great War, which releases every single Wednesday and Saturday. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter, my handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. It was along a ridge that Canadian troops would come to Mont Sorel, a small hill that rose 98 feet into the air, but provided a clear vantage point over the surrounding area. The force that occupied this spot would have excellent observation opportunities over Ypres and the approaching routes. Held by the Allies, it was the only part of the ridge that remained in their hands. And this brings us to the Battle of Mont Sorel. Looking at the Canadian positions, Lieutenant General Julian Bing, the commander of the Canadian Corps, saw that the Canadian troops were overlooked by German positions and under a danger of enemy fire. To remedy this, he assigned Major General Malcolm Mercer to drop a plan to overrun the German positions in a localized attack. While the Canadians began to put together their preparations to launch an attack on the Germans, the Germans were planning their own attack on Mont Sorel, with the objective of taking control of the observation positions east of Ypres and keeping the British pinned down there to avoid them transferring to the Somme. For six weeks, the Germans constructed trenches to resemble the Canadian trenches and train their attack. In mid-May 1916, aerial photos showed that the German forces were getting ready for an attack. Bombardments began from the Germans, but suddenly ceased on the night of June 1st and June 2nd, 1916. The Canadians did not know why, but little did the troops know, the Germans were in no man's land, clearing paths through barbed wire, and did not want their artillery interfering with the work. On June 2nd, the German 8th Corps began a bombardment of the Canadian positions again. In this initial attack, 90% of the Canadian Forward Reconnaissance Battalion became casualties. The 4th Canadian Mounted Rifles would be nearly wiped out. Major General Malcolm Mercer and 8th Canadian Brigade Commander Brigadier General Arthur Williams were doing an inspection on the front line when the attack began. Mercer would be hit three times and die the next day, while Williams would be wounded in the face and taken prisoner. Of the 702 soldiers in the regiment who were attacked, 76 were unhurt. In the history of the 4th Canadian Mounted Rifles, the morning is described as such, quote, It was a calm, beautiful, and noticeably quiet morning. Suddenly, without warning, from a heavenly, peaceful sky broke a deafening detonation and cloud of steel which had no precedent for weight and violence. Every conceivable gun, howitzer and trench morale around Ypres poured everything it had upon the 3rd Divisional Front, the most extravagant imagination cannot picture such a downpour of destruction. Even those who had tasted the bitterness of modern warfare were staggered by the violence of this onslaught. End quote. An NCO with the 42nd Battalion of the Royal Highlanders of Canada would write home stating the following, quote, 
It seemed as though the part of the line had been transformed into an active volcano so continuous were the flashing of bursting shells. End quote. At 1 p.m. that same day, the Germans would detonate four mines near the Canadian trenches. The history of the 4th Canadian Mounted Rifles goes on stating, quote, At 1 o'clock, the bombardment ceased, but only as a signal for the preparation for further violence. The ground quivered and gently heaved, and then came the volcanic roar of a mine. It hurled into the air a large part of the front line and its defenders. Sandbags, wire, machine guns, bits of corrugated iron, and bits of men were slung skyward. After this final eruption, all was quiet, even our guns. End quote. The Germans then attacked with six battalions, with another five battalions in support, and six more in reserve. In the detonation of the mines, the Royal Regina Rifles would lose 168 men. By the end of the entire battle, the Royal Regina Rifles would lose over 300 men, including three officers who were taken prisoner. Resistance on positions held by the 8th Canadian Brigade were minimal, and for hours, both the 8th and 3rd Canadian Brigades were without a leader to help coordinate their defense. German forces were able to take Montsorel and Hill 61, advancing 1,100 meters. In describing the attack, one soldier would say the following, quote, In bright sunlight, the grey-coated figures advanced in four waves, spaced about 75 yards apart. Afterwards, Canadian survivors spoke of the assured air and the almost leisurely pace of the attackers, who appeared confident that their artillery had blotted out all resistance, end quote. A German historian would praise the bravery of the Canadians after the war, stating, quote, It is fitting to stress that here too the Canadians did not surrender, but at their guns defended themselves with revolvers to the last man. End quote. Another German officer, writing in his diary, would say of the battle, quote, The attack was completely successful. We are in possession of the important double hill. One is proud of the victories which German and Austrians, Bulgarians and Turks win on all sides. Our enemies, after their continual favors, must soon recognize their helplessness and make an end of it. End quote. One trench, called the R Line, was described in one report as the following quote, Everything was shot to pieces, and the line is just one shell hole after another with beams sticking up in the air, dugouts completely fallen in, and parts of the trench buried. End quote. The attack would be the only time that the Canadian guns would fall into the hands of Germans. Bing would then begin working on a quickly organized counterattack on June 3rd. Two brigades of the 1st Canadian Division were placed under the control of Brigadier General Hornairn, who had assumed command of the 3rd Canadian Division. The counterattack would happen at 2 a.m. on June 3rd, 1916. But due to issues with the distance to travel and difficulty with communications, the attack was moved to 7 a.m. The signal of the attack would be six green rockets. Unfortunately, some of those rockets did not burst, resulting in an uneven assault with each unit leaving at different times from their original start time. Advancing over the open ground in broad daylight towards the Germans, the attacking battalion suffered heavy casualties, failed to regain any lost territory, but they did manage to close a 550-meter gap in the line and advance the Canadian front 910 meters from the positions it had retreated to after the German attack. An official report, printed in the Calgary Herald on June 17th, would state, quote, The enemy occupied our front line, but all his attempts to advance beyond that point were defeated by machine gun and rifle fire directly upon him from the support trenches and strong points. End quote. In the book, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry 1914-1919, it is stated that on the counterattack, the PPCLI would lose Lieutenant Colonel Butler and five officers, Major Galt, 
and another 12 officers, including two prisoners of war and 388 casualties in other ranks. General Douglas Haig and General Herbert Plummer of the British Expeditionary Force both wanted to expel the Germans from their positions. Not wanting to divert troops from the Battle of the Somme preparations, it was decided to push the Germans out using artillery and the troops available. Artillery began to bombard the German position, but the Germans suddenly exploded four large mines under the trenches of the 2nd Canadian Division, wiping out the Canadian 28th Battalion. The Canadians still managed to hold their position and prevented the Germans from reaching their support line. Major General Arthur Curry was then ordered to organize a careful attack. Due to the casualties from previous attacks, Curry organized troops into two brigades. Then, four 30-minute bombardments were carried out between June 9th and June 12th to make the Germans believe an attack was coming. For 10 hours on June 12th, shells fell on German positions constantly. A soldier quoted in the Vancouver Sun would state of the attack, quote, Our batteries were all combined into a bombardment of the positions captured from us. The fire was continued until dusk and was resumed at midnight with increased intensity. At 1 a.m. in the morning of June 13th, an attack was delivered by our infantry. End quote. One Canadian soldier quoted in the Montreal Gazette would state, quote, We were delighted with the way the guns supported us. They gave the Germans a taste of their own Verdun tactics. We are getting Lloyd George's munitions now. All right. End quote. The next morning, 45 minutes of shelling would occur on the Germans, and assaulting troops would advance through the smoke screen. The Germans were taken by surprise with this tactic and offered little in resistance. The Canadians were able to take 200 prisoners as a result. With the end of the battle, the Germans would attempt to retake the position they had held, and the account in the Vancouver Sun would state, quote, Assisted by our supporting battalions, our troops entrenched themselves on the approximate line of our original front trenches, which had been almost obliterated by the German bombardment of June 2nd. The length of the front recaptured was more than 1,500 yards, Several attempts to counterattack by the German infantry were frustrated by our artillery fire. End quote. With that, the battle was over. For literally no advancement except preventing the Germans from pushing farther into the Allied area, the Canadian Corps would see 8,430 Canadian soldiers killed, wounded, or missing. The British official history of the war would state the following of the battle quote, the first Canadian deliberately planned attack in any force had resulted in unqualified success. End quote. Philip Gibbs, writing for the London Chronicle, would state, quote, It was a great point of pride with the Canadians to recapture their lost ground themselves. End quote. Major John Alexander Ross would be awarded the Distinguished Service Order, while Captain J.A. Cumlum, Captain Albert Peter Miller, Lieutenant Jason Cresswell, Lieutenant Robert Winers, Lieutenant George Alexander Shear, Lieutenant Pierre-Louis Stewart-Brown and Lieutenant John Arnold Jackson would be awarded the Military Medal. Now let's look at some of the men who took part in this battle. Roderick Ogle Bell Irving was a clerk born in Vancouver, the third son of Henry Marie Ogle. Enlisting at the start of the First World War, he would find himself at the Battle of Montsorel, where he was held up with his company by machine gun fire. With his revolver plugged with mud, he bayoneted three machine gunners and was struggling with the fourth when help arrived. He would push on with his men taking command of both attacking companies of the 16th before the battle ended. For his action, he would be awarded the Military Cross, and he would be promoted to command, becoming a temporary major on June 10th and an acting major on July 1st. He would be confirmed as major on November 15, 1916. Sadly, he did not make it out of the war, dying at Canal du Nord in September of 1918.
Hershey Southworth Smith served with the 25th Battalion and would fight with his battalion at the Battle of Montsorel, losing his life on June 10th. Dennis Colburn Draper enlisted on January 6, 1915 in Quebec and served with the 5th Regiment Canadian Mounted Rifles. He would receive a field promotion to Lieutenant Colonel at the 3rd Battle of Ypres after Lieutenant Colonel George Harold Baker was killed. He would later reach the rank of Brigadier General and be put in command of the 8th Canadian Infantry Brigade. He would receive the Distinguished Service Order for his gallantry at the Battle of Montsorel and would receive a bar on the medal for his work at Passchendaele. His men spoke highly of him, stating, quote, He was a man who went among his men on the days when ill winds blew, end quote. His men also called him a hard-boiled egg, but also said, quote, Never a more kindly and sentimental man ever lived, end quote. He would not survive the war. Captain Percival Molson, the son of John Molson of the Montreal Brewing family and a former Stanley Cup winner, was wounded in the face at the battle on June 2nd by shrapnel, but refused to leave his troops. In dispatches, it was stated, quote, Although wounded in the head by shrapnel, Captain Molson refused to leave the line and remained with his company throughout the action. End quote. He would later return to the front before being killed by a direct hit by a shell on July 1917. He was awarded the Military Cross before his death. For John Maxwell of Orkney, Saskatchewan, he had joined the Canadian Expeditionary Force on September 22, 1915, and found himself serving with the Canadian Mounted Rifles during the battle, where he would be wounded on June 2, 1916. While in hospital in England, he would meet Ethel Trower, and they would eventually marry and move to Regina. Sergeant R. McIntyre would be wounded twice in the battle, but would also continue fighting and be mentioned in dispatches for his excellent work and for setting a splendid example. Today, for my soldier profile, I'm going to look at someone who became very famous in Canada. One of the greatest artists in Canadian history would take part in this battle. Known as Alexander Young Jackson, he would eventually become known as A.Y. Jackson. Born on October 3, 1882 in Montreal to a family of six children, his father would abandon the family early in Jackson's life. As a young man, Jackson would travel through Europe on a cattle boat and then go to Chicago as he honed his painting craft. By the time the war hit, Jackson was becoming a well-known painter in several circles, but that would not stop him from enlisting to fight. Private A.Y. Jackson of the 60th Battalion would be wounded on June 3rd, going over the top of the trench. And while he was recovering from his injuries, he came to the attention of Lord Beaverbrook, who had him transferred to the Canadian War Records branch as an artist. Through his service, Jackson would paint the haunting canvases of the blasted landscapes of the Western Front. Following his time in the war, Jackson would connect with six other painters in Canada in 1919 to form the fabled Group of Seven. These artists were considered to be bold landscape painters, often creating their work in oil and hardboard. Jackson would spend the rest of his life earning his reputation as one of the greatest painters in Canadian history, even submitting his own design during the Great Canadian Flag Debate in 1964. A member of the Order of Canada, with two schools named for him and a highway lookout as well, Jackson would pass away at the age of 91 on April 5, 1974, in Kleinberg, Ontario. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the Battle of Montsorel. Next week, I'm looking at the Battle of Albert. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. 
And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Katie Caldwell, Jeff Hershey, Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, Brianna Fultz, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Shove, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseeth, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke Guess, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, Great War Album, CanadianSoldiers.com, Wikipedia, Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, 1914-1919, The Story of the Royal Regina Rifles, Orkney Stories, 4th Canadian Mounted Rifles, 1914-1919, and the Royal Highlanders of Canada. Thanks. We'll see you again next time. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone. Like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.